participate is in these papers by Cunliffe and Matt Singer. Okay, great. Fascinating stuff. And if I could have one follow-up, I'd love to hear Ray. Um, uh, I, I'm always very interested to hear him talk about the dead universe theory and biological fields, so I'll hang up. If there's anything he'd like to go into on that, I would be uh, very interested to hear it. Thank you, Ray, and thank you, John. All right, thanks a lot, Justin. Uh, the which universe theory was it? Uh, Justin, you gone? I think he said bio-universe, but I'm not sure. Are you having trouble hearing, Ray, on, on your end? Uh, no, no, I just, I just didn't get what kind of universe he said. Oh, maybe, um, yeah, I don't want to speculate. Could it have been dead universe? Oh, possibly. Um, I can, um, well, for example, if you want to look at, at another controversial uh, video on the Internet, uh, Wallace, or Wall, Thornhill, uh, has some things on the uh, electrical uh, cosmos. Um, I think uh, his website is thunderbolt.com, if I remember. Okay. That sounds interesting. Uh, we have another caller. Are you are you there, caller? Oh, no, this, this is Justin again. I was just going to clarify. I was just talking about okay. uh, the, the notion that the, the universe was dead and inert. And uh, most of biology was just kind of of that nature. Do you understand what I, I'm what I'm saying, Ray? I still didn't get the word. There uh, was a bubble, right? Oh uh, yeah, he was saying that the uh, he was wondering about most of, that most of biology looks at the universe as being dead and inert and not a living oh, system. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, the field idea in biology. Uh, Embryology as the model uh, developing according to its interactions with the environment. Um, that idea continued. Uh, some of the people who, who were developing experiments uh, on trying to understand the rules by which an organism takes form, uh, some of these people uh, were vitalists who believed there was something extra uh, besides the matter, but uh, at least they were interested in the actual events as the organism took form. And they were knocked out of biology by the gene people uh, who, uh, I would say, are on the side of an inert Cosmos. Uh, they want to explain things in terms of uh, essentially immaterial information, and and they're the ones who uh, talk about the vitalists wanting to introduce uh, a vital principle as as being uh, somehow against the materialism of science. But but the, the um, genetics people really want to uh, depreciate the material uh, world in favor of an information world. And, and the, the idea of the central dogma was that the information that we have in our genes is immortal and uh, can't be added to, and it can only uh, be uh, written out into mortal, 
temporary uh, <laughs> imperfect organisms, but it's the um, the timeless stuff. So, uh, really, the calling people like uh, Driesch uh, a vitalist and saying that they weren't really biologists, uh, it's kind of self-referential because the genetics people have thrown out most of the interesting stuff in biology until the last 10 years or so. When they're starting to get back to the field theory again. Yeah. Did you get that, Justin? Yes, I did. Thank you. Okay. And I'll hang up so someone else can get a question. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot for calling. All right. All right, and the number again is uh, 802-526-2326. And I do have some questions here. We get to them before we get busy. Um, there's one from uh, Brittany asking, let's see, if you are trying to self-treat for hypothyroid based upon blood tests and symptoms, how much T4 would be considered too much to take? And is T4 even necessary at all? Um, the um, problem with the, the commercialization of synthetic T4 that started in the late 40s uh, was that they tested it on male medical students uh, who are about 25 years old and selected for good health, mm-hmm. and they found that it worked in them just like the real thyroid substance that had been in in use for about 40, 50 years at that time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the trouble is that it then became commercialized, and women have at least five times the uh, incidence of thyroid problems because of the antagonism between estrogen and thyroid. And uh, the um, thyroid sluggishness that's so common in women shows up as a slow metabolism of the liver. Uh, typically, a woman premenstrually will get drunk on a fraction of the alcohol that it takes to make a man drunk because the liver Hmm. is slowed down by the antagonism between estrogen and thyroid and oxidative metabolism. And it happens that uh, thyroxin has to be activated in the liver by taking off one of the iodines in the right position to make it the active hormone called T3. And so if, if women are having already low blood sugar symptoms or uh, high estrogen symptoms, uh, things that uh, are the result of, of hypothyroidism, then T4 can uh, very often not help or even make the problem worse. Uh, some experimenters took, they were trying to um, uh, argue that thyroid does something other than rev up the oxidative metabolism. So they took slices of muscle and kidney Mm -hmm. and liver and brain and heart and added thyroxin T4 uh, to these uh, cultured slices and saw that the liver uh, had a tremendous burst of uh, 
oxidative activity, but the the kidneys didn't do much, and the livers, the, the muscles didn't do anything, and added to the brain, it actually suppressed oxidative metabolism in the brain. Hmm. And so they said, uh, you see, uh, oxidation isn't what uh, thyroid really does. It just happens that the liver responds that way. <clears throat> but uh, they were looking at the pre-hormone. The liver has to turn it into the active hormone before it can work in the muscles, kidneys, heart, and brain. And what it turns out that uh, the brain concentrates, the, the blood can have 40 times as much uh, T4 as T3 uh, if your liver is a little sluggish, and your brain will still concentrate uh, the T3 to the point that it has a one-to-one ratio. And so if, if you put the, the brain slice in the dish where it can't get a new supply of T3 constantly, the added T4 can't do anything except displace some of the active hormone that the brain had been concentrating at the one-to-one ratio. Hmm. So adding T4 to the brain in the, in the culture dish had caused suppression of metabolic activity. And in people, you very often see it causing uh, neurological symptoms, uh, strange electrical sensations or ringing ears or worse memory, uh, various hmm. uh, things that, that are really signs of worse thyroid function. So it sounds like T4 probably is not, you shouldn't be taking very much of it, if any at all, especially if you're a woman. Yeah, it, it's, it's very good if you don't need it very much. Uh-huh. So uh, a lot of people take a, a, a mixture of um, T4 and T3, supposedly close to the physiological dose of a 1 to 5, I think it is. Of a Well, the, the gland, if you take a, a human gland or mm-hmm. a cow gland, it's close to a 4 to 1 ratio. Okay. Uh, and is, is that and a good mixture to take if you're s- supplementing your thyroid with it? Yeah, even a 5 to 1 mixture is okay mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the, the uh, people who were insisting on still using the armor with its 4 to 1 ratio in the 1960s uh, as the uh, pharmaceutical companies developed tests for diagnosing thyroid they started noticing that the people who were taking thyroxin had maybe a, a 40 to 1 ratio of T4 to T3 in the blood, but the people who were taking armor had maybe a 10 to 1 or a 5 to 1 ratio, and so they defined the people who were taking T4 as the normal, and the ones who were taking armor as having too much T3, Hmm. but uh, uh, most doctors at that time weren't aware at all that T3 was the thyroid hormone. Oh, I see. So they jumped to conclusions, and we're still stuck with some of those conclusions. Uh, yeah, one of the the uh, ideas that spread quickly in the late 1940s, uh, when the uh, the first blood tests for thyroid came on the market around the same time as as Synthroid, the T4 product, 
um, they it was the protein bound iodine test, and where uh, people like Broder Barnes had seen uh, close to half of the population benefiting from some thyroid, uh, which used to be part of the meat supply until the agriculture department uh, said the meat companies could no longer sell it. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Broder Barnes' time, he saw that somewhere between 20 and and 45% of the people benefited from uh, taking some thyroid. Uh, But these new blood tests in the late 40s found that 95% of the people uh, had uh, a fairly high level of iodine bound to protein in the blood. And that created the only 5% need a thyroid supplement idea. I see. But then by the 1960s, new tests came about, and they realized that the protein-bound iodine test had almost nothing to do with thyroid function, really nothing to do with thyroid function. <laughs> so the, the standard that still persists uh, widely, that not only 5% of the population uh, is potentially a candidate for supplement, uh, the basis for establishing that had nothing to do with the thyroid function. Yeah, and I'm beginning to see that that's a common problem in science is that uh, basically conclusions get uh, set in stone and then they never get revisited again. Yeah. Uh, Lilia asks, oh, there was a follow-up question to that last one. Let me just get that before I move on because I'll lose it. Um, hang on a second. Let me find that. Uh, this is also... Oh, hang on. Just a minute. Oh, here it is. Yes, uh, it was an undigested food question. If you tend to constantly have excessive air, chest pressure, or feeling the need to burp, is that a sign of low stomach acid with undigested food causing problems or too much stomach acid? And what would you do about it, if you have any idea? Uh, basically, no. <laughs> uh, a lot of different things can cause that. Uh, some mm-hmm. people can actually have reverse peristalsis. When you analyze burps, um, most of the time it's air that you've swallowed mm-hmm. uh, coming back, just plain uh, perfect air. But sometimes you find... Uh, uh, other gases such as methane uh, coming out in burps and uh, the uh, Walter Alvarez one of the interesting things he <laughs> demonstrated was that it's pretty common for people to experience very uh, very intense reverse peristalsis um, he put some lycopodium powder in his medical students' rectums uh, when they went home for, for the evening. I'm beginning to get the idea that I wouldn't have wanted to be in his medical class. <laughs> and, uh, he had them uh, fill out a, a questionnaire saying whether they typically experienced morning breath. Uh, and uh, then when they came in in the morning after getting the lycopodium powder, he took a swab in their mouth 
and found lycopodium powder in the mouths of the ones who typically had bad breath in the morning. Wow. That's a little grim. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they didn't have girlfriends um, or boyfriends. <laughs> so, but you think most of the time the air is just from swallow? I mean, the uh, the burping is just from swallowing air, most likely? Yeah, in the daytime. The Most of the reverse peristalsis happens in the night. But, All right. Um, if if you're low thyroid, your um, autonomic nervous system tends to rev up compensating for the low uh, uh, oxidative metabolism. It pushes it harder to to increase your your um, adrenaline in particular. Uh, some of the other things, uh, histamine and serotonin, go up too. Mm. But the um, the adrenaline tends to Stop the forward propulsion of the peristalsis, and and then uh, random signals, irritation from something in your intestine, uh, can probably send waves uh, going both directions, hmm. uh, and and that probably is more common when your digestive system is slightly paralyzed by a very high adrenaline level. Yeah. All right. Um, Sheila asks, what are your thoughts on multiple sclerosis? What causes it, and how do you think it should best be treated? Uh, in the 70s, I saw a series of five people over a period of just maybe, a, I don't know, a year or two, I think. And uh, as they told me their uh, symptoms, I said that sounds like classical hypothyroidism <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, they uh, a couple of these people uh, went to their old-fashioned doctors with a list of what they had just told me that their symptoms were and uh, said here are my symptoms what do I have and the doctor said hypothyroidism <laughs> and gave them thyroid and uh, uh, that series of five people in a row, every one of them uh, discovered they didn't have multiple sclerosis, but rather just needed a thyroid supplement. Hmm. Uh, the same person asks, and this is definitely related, why do I feel bad after I accidentally took too much desiccated thyroid? Uh, she increased it a little too fast over the couple, course of a couple weeks, and she was eating, she actually managed to get some raw thyroid from a butcher, which is interesting because that's something I've been trying to do for a while unsuccessfully. And uh, she would like to know how long does it usually take for the thyroid to get back to normal when you stop eating it? And is there anything uh, to do about it uh, getting to feel better quicker? Oh, um, well, people probably worry too much about it. The T4 has a half-life of two weeks and T3 in different people can have a half-life as short as, as one day. And, and so if, if you were getting a, a sudden overdose, uh, and your pulse went up maybe 150 beats per minute at rest, mm -hmm. uh, in oh, 48 hours, probably you would have, uh, lost 
at least half of your T3, which is the active stuff, and your and your liver would uh, then be putting out uh, just sort of a disposal uh, amount, converting the T4 to T3. So uh, usually, if if you took so much that you had a, a very fast 150 beat heart rate in two days, you would probably be down to a, a fairly safe, comfortable 120 beats per minute. I see. And, and if you wanted to intervene and, and make that even a quicker transition? Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen uh, oh, some people who, who just suddenly spontaneously became hyperthyroid or who had overdosed. Uh, juicing cabbage raw, it just takes a glass or two of that to uh, very powerfully suppress your, your thyroid functions. It, it worked at several levels, but usually a glass or two a day for a couple of days and the person is back down to normal. Hmm. And once you suppress... Oh, go ahead. Well, well, uh, liver is is another suppressive food. If you eat two big meals of liver, uh, you can see a big decrease in thyroid function. And how long does that suppression last from liver or cabbage? Uh, If you eat something and say you're not uh, hyperthyroid, you're just normal whatever that is, and you eat some liver, um, how long does it take for your thyroid to bounce back? Is that also just a matter of a couple days? Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, the fear of suppressing your thyroid gland itself uh, by taking too much thyroid, that has been tested by using isotopes that they could tell where the thyroid was coming from. So they would dose them until they could tell there was no uh, thyroid being produced by their own gland, and then they stopped dosing them mm-hmm. uh, to see if there was any concern about prolonged suppression. And everyone's gland came right back in a couple of days. Well, that's encouraging. So you can supplement your thyroid without fear of permanently uh, taking it out of the system, which I think is what a lot of people are told if they talk to their doctor about it. Um. Yeah, and... The um, people, farmers who had their own uh, animals, often uh, they would eat the uh, thyroid gland in the chicken neck, for example. And uh, one guy I knew uh, said that on Friday they always had fried chicken in the field for lunch. And he said uh, Friday afternoons he was always too hot Uh to work, but he would eat five necks and, and get probably uh, oh, 20 grains of thyroid or so. Oh, yeah. Uh, a very suppressive dose, and it would be very hot, but by the next day it would have passed. Huh. I don't, that'll get you moving. There's <laughs> um, another thyroid question here from Wade. Uh, I would like to ask Ray's thoughts on reverse T3. Uh if it is really necessary to use T3 treatment only to clear out the accumulated reverse T3 or if a combination thyroid product and proper nutrition will resolve the issue? Uh, yeah, I think it's mostly caused by high uh, cortisol and stress hormones. And so just um, eating a good supportive diet, plenty of fruit, or juice and milk, uh, will help keep the stress down, and uh, I think it, it 
works just as effectively as as um, taking just small amounts of T3. Hmm. And what causes reverse T3 is basically where your whole thyroid system shuts down. Is that right? Yeah. If you um, uh, are, if your body thinks that you're having an overexposure to thyroid, it uh, gets rid of of the excess by turning thyroxine into an inactive kind of T3. It, it takes off the wrong iodine. And uh, so if, if you're um, fasting, for example, uh, part of the thyroid is being excreted the way estrogen or toxins are being excreted all the time, uh, but part of it is being uh, inactivated in a way that uh, has an anti-thyroid effect. It interferes with the active T3, so it's an extra fast way to turn off your thyroid function. Not, not just getting rid of the active stuff, but making a, a neutralizing, uh, blocking form of the thyroid. Hmm. And I missed part of the question of the person who was uh, concerned about MS and that was had to do with a drug uh, to uh, decrease the number of MS symptoms, and I think it's called, I just can't find the word here, uh, naloxone, or do you know what? Um, um, yeah, naloxone or naltrexone. Yeah, there you go, uh, thank you. So, um, when you're under stress, uh, you uh, produce the endorphins, and the endorphins, uh, they, uh, they compensate for injury or stress, uh, and they should go away, but uh, prolonged stress can leave you uh, sort of uh, inhibited in various ways uh, with the wrong pattern of, of endorphins. And uh, there, if, if a person has uh, been exposed to prolonged stress, sometimes you can break out of that pattern and recover functions uh, with an anti-morphine treatment. Uh, these uh, these uh, naloxone and naltrexone are the injected and oral forms of an anti-opiate that, that mm -hmm. simply uh, keeps the uh, morphine or the endorphin from having its effect, and and sometimes that can restore functions that that had been suppressed. And it sounds like you've you've uh, opined uh, that you don't like opiates, or that you think they're actually uh, bad for you in the long run. Uh, and so that sounds like it's not a bad thing to be taking. Um. Yeah. I. I think it. It usually has its effect in in just a few days, though. I see. Um, and I think if it hasn't uh, really made a big difference in just a few days, then it's probably some other problem. I see. So if you uh, wanted to keep the inflammation low, could you just uh, use some other anti-inflammatory? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, all kinds of... of uh, stabilizing anti-inflammatory things, uh, thyroid and progesterone and the uh, 
short-chain fatty acids and sugars are all things that help restore uh, injured, demyelinated nerves. Mm. Uh, what? Well, let me ask before I go on to my own questions. And the phone number again is 802-526-2326, 802-526-2326. If anybody wants to call, and you can Skype me at John Barkhausen, all one word. Uh, Lilia asks, um, do, do you, Ray, have any thoughts on the efficacy of prolotherapy in which a solution containing sugar in the form of dextrose is injected into tendons or ligaments to strengthen weakened connective tissue, uh, tissue that was weakened as the result of injury? Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. Um, my father had it done. I think they used vegetable oil in the 19... 19- 50s, hmm. uh, a combination of uh, uh, no- Novocaine and vegetable oil, I think, was the, the popular thing then, and it uh, causes an inflammatory reaction and toughening up of the ligaments, and uh, it can can uh, cure uh, some back problems without anything uh, very invasive, uh, just a a shot into the ligament, hmm. uh, and so it, it's proven to to work. But I think there are better things. Uh, it's usually uh, a low DHEA production from from low thyroid, high estrogen, uh, and stress hormones that cause the ligaments and tendons to get weak, and uh, the uh, Correcting the thyroid function and maybe taking a DHEA or pregnenolone supplement uh, would be the natural way to uh, strengthen the the ligaments and tendons, and it helps the bones at the same time. Mm. Okay. I guess the person who did this did find relief from it, um, and she'd been uh, suffering for 35 years, so it sounds like there's a couple ways to... S- to fix that problem. Um, and I was going to ask you, uh, I know people wonder when the, you they hear you talk, by the way, we are talking to Dr. Raymond Pete, who's a uh, PhD in biology with a specialization in physiology f- from Eugene, Oregon, and he also has a vast knowledge of science history. Uh, and we have about half an hour to go here at WMRW LP Warren. And we are having a fundraiser, by the way. I, f- I keep forgetting to mention it. But if you'd like to contribute to alternative radio, uh, radio that doesn't uh, have commercial conscriptions, uh, feel free to do that at any time at WMRW.org. You can click the pig to make a PayPal or credit card donation. And we're trying to raise our $10,800 annual operating budget which is uh, not much money to run a radio station. so, And that's because nobody here is paid a salary. Thanks for putting up with that, Ray. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I wanted to ask you, oh, a lot of times it sounds like all of our problems uh, boil down to ha- having a, a, a slow metabolism are, are basically the engine that drives us and gives us all of our energy is not running well 
And I've heard the complaint about uh, your writings before that all he ever thinks is wrong with us is our thyroid. Um, and somehow that's a, a, a put down. Um, well, how do you respond to that? Well, the um, it, it doesn't apply just to people. It applies to uh, all complex organisms, practically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between us and a fungus is that we've had a lot of, of thyroid and oxidative metabolism that the fungus hasn't benefited from. Uh, uh, all of our functions uh, are... Uh, characterized by high energy oxidative metabolism, the brain more than any other part. And uh, as you look at the animal kingdom, uh, the uh, outstanding thing is that their oxidative metabolism increases as they go up the so-called evolutionary scale. Uh, And it's that um, oxygen is is driving our uh, existence and our our existence is culminating in a bigger, more expensive brain that other animals couldn't afford because their thyroid function wasn't adequate. It's uh, really the the essential thing uh, given oxygen and, and sugar and a few other materials uh, uh, thyroid is the catalyst for uh, making things run right mm-hmm. and it's I mean the, the, uh, when people complain that all you and I don't think it's actually true but when they say that all you talk about is the thyroid it, it's um, it's they make it sound like you're not interested in any of the other systems of the body but uh, the thyroid does seem like the master system um, in terms of energy production for everything. Uh, yeah, and if, if your thyroid, for example, is is working efficiently, then your um, uh, pituitary doesn't have much to do, and uh, you, you aren't likely to get a pituitary tumor. Uh, your adrenals <laughs> don't have much to do. <laughs> your ovaries <laughs> don't don't get overstimulated. Uh, the other glands uh, have an easy job when your thyroid is working right. If your thyroid gets interfered with, then uh, you've got to rev up your adrenals and your, then your pituitary uh, becomes a, a commander-in-chief and tells everyone what to do. Mm, with the stress hormones. Yeah, and uh, uh, then, then you're at risk of, of getting tumors of the ovaries or testicles or adrenal glands or thyroid gland because your uh, your pituitary is working them too hard. Mm. That's a that's a good way to look at it. Um I also wanted to in lieu of anybody else calling in, I have some questions about common problems. Uh a lot of people have arthritis and we've discussed that a little bit today, but uh in our shows about uh, progesterone, you were talking about uh, several instances where progesterone was very helpful to women with arthritis. Uh, but what about men? Is it a is it the right oh, yeah. substance to use for men in arthritis? 
Um, yeah, one of the first people I gave it to was a, a friend uh, over 40 years ago, I think, um, who um, every afternoon his knee swelled up, oh, obviously rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. It looked like a football. And uh, I just got some standard injectable progesterone from the drugstore, and he put the whole vial on, rubbed it from his side down to his calf. Mm-hmm. And uh, two or three hours later, uh, he was walking and showed me his knee. It was no longer swollen. And uh, just um, about three or four years ago, he was still walking without a limp. Mm-hmm. I hadn't noticed arthritis in all that time. So for and, uh, so for people developing arthritis in their hands now, um, is that... Is that also a thyroid problem, do you think, or is it just some inflammation that could be taken care of with uh, aspirin or progesterone? Uh, yeah, when your thyroid is down, you compensate with all kinds of other uh, stress hormones. Um, your autonomic system goes up, but so does your uh, adrenal, uh, uh, cortical, and aldosterone uh, hormones, uh, estrogen increases, um, even uh, melatonin gets involved, uh, everything uh, runs to compensate when, when the thyroid is low, and uh, some of these compensatory uh, things uh, don't quite compensate fully, and then they get involved in, in creating the inflammation, hmm. uh, and that's where the DHEA and progesterone, uh, either taken orally or, or can be applied topically, uh, those are, are the things that are deficient uh, that, uh, as a consequence, uh, the other uh, uh, more uh, delicate and uh, dangerous hormones, such as estrogen and cortisol, those increase because you're, you're low in progesterone, DHEA, and, and pregnenolone. And so supplementing any of those three or all three of them uh, will usually uh, alleviate or cure uh, arthritis. I've known people with dogs or horses. uh, They thought that the horse was so old that it would never uh, work again. Mm -hmm. And uh, just giving it progesterone, they they made uh, the horse uh, healthy and happy for several more years hmm. and people with dogs that uh, couldn't uh, basically couldn't walk around couldn't get up on the furniture uh, uh, they gave them pregnenolone or progesterone and they were their normal uh, test selves that's great uh, we have a caller uh, you're on the air caller uh, hi thanks for taking my call um, Ray um in your essay on autonomic systems, there's a little passage about uh, 20th century writing and painting, and you talk about um, those things being considered expressive rather than communicative. Um, I was wondering if you could give some examples of uh, 20th century writers or painters who you think are communicative and not insane, <laughs> and uh, as someone maybe who is following in Lake's footsteps. I missed several parts of those sentences. Uh, John, could you 
repeat them? Um, I'm not sure if I got them all either. Could you try again, caller, and I'll turn the volume up, so maybe Ray will get it. Okay, I'm sorry. It might be my cell phone's fault. Um, I was just wondering if there are any um, 20th century writers or painters who you consider not insane, who you consider communicative rather than expressive, oh. maybe somebody who's following in Blake's footsteps. Somebody who's following um, in Blake's footsteps. Uh, yeah. Um, I, uh, Siqueiros was uh, one of my heroes. Uh, David Alfaro Siqueiros. Uh, how do you spell that? Uh, S-I-Q-U-E-I-R-O-S. Okay, thanks. And and why did you originally say that, Ray, that uh, the 20th century artists are um, considered to be out of their minds? Um, well, the, the um, they were driven out of their minds partly by the CIA's project called uh, the uh, uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom, mm. uh, which uh, worked with uh, Nelson Rockefeller to uh, glorify uh, some of the, uh, uh, what Siqueiros uh, called them, the ghost artists. They were uh, creating a culture of anti-culture and uh, the CIA knew exactly what they were doing, uh, and presumably Nelson Rockefeller did too, uh, when he and his uh, two or three other uh, philanthropists uh, concentrated on these people because of their anti-social consciousness. Uh, and they, they ridiculed the idea that art should have a, a social consciousness and the CIA uh, pumped Marshall Plant money into uh, the creating this alternative culture of uh, abstract expressionism and such. Hmm. Sounds like we need to start a new show called Politics and Art. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, corrupting fa- uh, influence of money everywhere. Uh, do you have another uh, comment, caller? Okay, uh, no, thank you. I'll, I'll get off now. Bye. Okay, thanks for calling. Um, uh, I'm not sure. I think it was just because Siqueiros uh, was working around the New York crowd that he saw what was happening. Uh, uh, it was years later before uh, the actual... Uh, Facts became public. I think it was 1968 mm-hmm. uh, when when this uh, CIA financing of of culture uh, was revealed. But uh, Siqueiros had been there, seeing it, it going on. Hmm. So he was the the first person I heard of writing about the you know, the government's official ghost culture. Yeah, that's. Uh, and what do you think the government's motive was for doing that, Ray? Was it just to divorce people from uh, the well to um, the to world? improve the, the power? Yeah, to improve the power of of the Rockefeller class uh, by keeping uh, anyone who said art should 
be socially conscious, uh, show them to be uh, some kind of degenerate or subversive. Um, we just got another email question in. Uh, it's to ask you what causes uh, what causes moles on the skin. Um, I, I'm not uh, sure what you would say causes them, but uh, I've in myself and in uh, several friends, uh, I've I found that they were very hormonally related uh, in. About 1980, one summer, uh, I had been watching a, a mole grow on my belly, and it was obviously, to me, uh, becoming a, a dangerous melanoma. It had grown from a little brown spot mm-hmm. to a... Uh, uh, can you just keep it down while Ray answers this question? There's some... Uh, turn off your mic for a second. Okay. Um. Uh, the um, I, it was becoming a, an obvious melanoma to me, and a, a couple of doctors who happened to be visiting that summer saw it and and told me that they thought it was a melanoma. Mm-hmm. But around that time, I was experimenting with uh, different steroids, and uh, I just happened to be uh, tasting some DHEA around that time, and uh, without thinking of any connection, uh, one night I noticed uh, a shiny red dome on my belly uh, where the mole had been. Mm-hmm. And over the next three or four days, uh, the mole disappeared. And uh, uh, thinking about it, I realized that I had been uh, sampling the DHEA around that time. So uh, the next time I started getting a mole that looked like it was turning into a melanoma, for example, uh, turning blue and white, and the the blue and white spots swimming around or changing positions rapidly, Hmm. uh, typical behavior of a melanoma. I would just uh, apply a a little either progesterone or DHEA to that area, and immediately the color, instead of swimming around in, in colored spots, would level out and become just a little tan-colored thing, and then it would go away. And I had a, a series of experiments. One was a, a mole as big as a jumbo olive that uh, when I uh, finally put some progesterone near it, within two weeks it had uh, turned to a crisp and fallen off without leaving a trace of a scar wow. where this huge, huge black thing had been. And uh, I found that I could uh, sort of steer them. Uh, they're extremely mobile, the, the pigment cells. Uh, hmm. A huge black thing appeared uh, suddenly on my lower arm. And having the other experiences, I put a, a dot of progesterone in oil on the uh, upside about an inch from the the spot. Is that coconut and the oil? Next day there were. Uh, it, well, I think it was vitamin E and progesterone. Okay, thanks. And the the following day there was a shadow of it, uh, about an inch uh, downstream towards my hand, and I put another dot on, 
and uh, each time I put a dot on the next day there would be a shadow an inch farther down so I had uh, a series of of three or four progressively fainter shadows and each time a shadow moved out from it the spot itself got fainter and pretty soon all of the cells had uh, walked away from the the big black spot Hmm. and um, in in another case uh, putting a dot on the front of one on my forehead uh, the pigment cells moved out in a circumference uh, away from it so it looked on the third day it looked like a bullseye and uh, after about a week the original spot had shrunk up and uh, uh, pinched off at the base Wow. And uh, left, left no scar. That's uh, phenomenal. Various other people who, who didn't experiment in such detail would just take an overdose of thyroid for a week or two. Mm-hmm. And uh, day by day, you could see their, their mole shrinking until, in, in one case, a mole an inch long <laughs> uh, disappeared from a guy's back so, in two weeks. So you were just toying with it, with that... Progesterone and pregnenolone. <laughs> yeah, very entertaining to see how fast these cells can run through your body. Yeah, uh, people have have studied them on uh, cover slips, and uh, at ninety degrees, which is the average skin temperature, uh, a cell of that type can walk about an inch per day. Wow! If it's motivated. <laughs> If you if you've got something to move it along, no loitering. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have. Yeah, a co- I think the reason I think the reason they collect in certain spots is that they come looking for something that's missing from where they were. Hmm. They're looking for some resource to take advantage of, or yeah, like some they found some cell that was emitting uh, DHEA possibly, oh. and so everyone moves in to take advantage. Huh. I see. And that's maybe what caused the mole to form in the first place. Uh, yeah, that's. I'm, uh, some people uh, just the last couple of months have been uh, thinking about uh, the factors that guide cell migration. And uh, it's probably going to be a very interesting field in the next few years. Uh, mm. uh, trying, to, for example, to lure cancer cells back from their metastatic positions. Uh, call them back to where they should be. Hmm. That sounds uh, much more civilized than what they do now. Uh, we do have a call array and not very much time left, so uh, okay. ca- caller, if you want to turn on your mic. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for doing that. And uh, what's your question? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about um, uh, type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome um, and how it causes, with you know, goes together with low testosterone and you know what's the best way to attack that okay we have um, about we have about uh, seven minutes um, i've I've got some uh, newsletters specifically on that but uh, uh, getting the polyunsaturated fats out of your body uh, as as far as possible or keeping them in storage if they're there uh, uh, but definitely avoiding all kinds of polyunsaturated fats because those are the things that specifically 
uh, interfere with the ability to oxidize uh, uh, glucose. Um, one of the one of the reasons that aspirin for a hundred years has been known to uh, help lower blood sugar in in that kind of diabetes uh, is that aspirin uh, does several things to interrupt the effects of the polyunsaturated fats. It keeps them from turning into the inflammation-causing prostaglandins, but it also helps to uh, keep them in storage where they don't do any harm or not so much harm. Hmm. All right. Is it, Carl, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for that. And I wanted to know if that also, you know, correlate into the weight loss because I found that, you know, as soon as weight is lost, the, the blood sugar starts regulating itself. Yeah, the, um, uh, the fat cells are sending out signals uh, that create inflammation. Uh, leptin is one of the pro-inflammatory signals that uh, you want to signal your fat to uh, stop sending leptin if possible. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we have one more uh, question that came in by email, Ray, and it says, uh, it's from Jerry, I eat raw vegetables out of the garden all summer. Is that a no-no? I always thought raw veggies were more nutritious than cooked. It depends on what they are. Uh, like uh, peppers, for example, are really fruits. Uh, tomatoes and peppers are are good raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, and carrots and uh uh, some of the uh, the uh, radishes, for example, are if you ate a lot of them, they would be anti-thyroid. But uh, there there are some uh, things called vegetables that are really fairly uh, rich in in sugar as well as the minerals, and so those sweetish root uh, uh, vegetables are, are uh, pretty healthy. And uh, the fruits, uh, tomatoes and uh, bell peppers in particular. Mm. As long as you, you're not uh, nightshade uh, intolerant. Yeah, yeah. The um, allergy to those is a problem for a lot of people. You're not very big on uh, some raw vegetables, is, is that right? Like beans and such. Um, uh, yeah. The the. Um, uh, the, the raw stuff, it's likely to uh, feed bacteria and cause problems. And uh, if there is a seed developing in it, uh, that has other specific toxins. Mm. Uh, like like peas and beans are, are not, not so great. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted to ask you about eczema. I was wondering if you had any tips for how to handle that we only have a couple minutes um, keeping your intestine in good condition is is one of the things uh, both eczema and psoriasis uh, are, tend to flare up uh, in a lot of people when they eat bread or other grains and uh, beans are very hard on the intestine in general but uh, seeds grains and beans 
irritating the intestine tend to create sympathetic reactions. Uh, the uh, particular enzyme that reacts to uh, gluten is uh, involved in uh, the maturing of the skin cells. And so the uh, this particular enzyme is now being studied as a, a link between the intestine and the skin, hmm. the transglutaminase enzymes. And what can somebody do about eczema if they have it? Um, uh, thyroid very often helps. helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would progesterone also, do you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, very often, uh, uh, sometimes pregnenolone, uh, by balancing all of the others, it's the precursor to all of the steroid hormones. And uh, in itself, it stops the stress reaction. And to the extent that your uh, stress system uh, from pituitary to adrenals associates with a flare-up of uh, skin problems, Mm -hmm. uh, just by turning off the stress with pregnenolone, uh, you can see a a big change in in a lot of problems. And... Well, we're actually out of time, so I can't go on even though I want to. Um, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, it's been a real pleasure once again having you on the show, and thanks for doing such a marathon and handling all those questions. Okay. Uh, So well, really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay, have a good night, Ray. Okay, bye. Uh, Yeah, bye-bye. Well, it's hard to believe that sped by so quickly. I want to thank everybody.